Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 125, Exodus Part 3, which was originally broadcast as the second hour of Exodus Part 2. This is the 24th overall episode of Lost, and there are 97 to go. A couple of quick reminders. Uh, first, uh, the podcast now has a voicemail number, so you can share your thoughts about uh, various Lost episodes or various uh, things that came up during the podcast by calling 732-707-1815. Second, I just wanted to mention that a few weeks ago we had uh, Pete from geekversusgeek.com uh, share some thoughts about the first season of Lost. Uh, I think that many of the listeners would enjoy uh, reading some of the discussions going on at geekversusgeek.com. Uh, which kind of has daily blog battles on a variety of topics, some of them more on the nerdy end, some of them on the broader end. So uh, certainly head on over to geekversusgeek.com. That's versus with uh, spelled V-S, not not spelled out, geekversusgeek.com. And uh, with that, let's get to a little fan feedback. Uh, first, uh, Wayne on Twitter uh, answered the question that uh, I've had out there for a while about Dr. Arts. He said uh, that Doc Arts was on the plane in LAX, he also was the science teacher at the school when Ben and uh, where Ben and Locke worked. So um, there you go, the uh, the longstanding arts question. And with that, let's get into the Wikipedia summary of the episode uh, that was read by Marty. Hurley awakens late for his flight due to a short circuit in the wall outlet that leaves his alarm clock without power. In a mad dash for the airport, he experiences several problems, including a flat tire and arriving at the domestic terminal, rather than the international. He manages to get to the terminal just as they are closing the gate. The boarding agent is able to get them to reopen the doors for him, and he gives her a big hug. Airline staff tell Locke that the wheelchair that is normally used to load disabled passengers on the plane is missing, and he must be carried on by two attendants. When he drops a pamphlet from his seat, he's unable to reach it, but struggles to maintain his dignity. In the final flashback, a montage shows our group of strangers boarding the plane. Claire struggles in the aisle to get to her seat. Kate is led in in handcuffs onto the plane, and Sawyer searches for his seat. Jack puts his luggage in the overhead compartment with Locke watching right behind him. Saeed endures the stares of fellow passengers by looking at pictures of his long-lost love, Nadia. Michael fastens the seatbelt of Walt as the boy ignores his father. And Shannon frantically searches for her inhaler, but is unable to find it. Boone gives it to her, causing her to smile. Hurley makes it onto the plane, giving Walt a big thumbs up before sitting down. Finally, Jack 
about to sit down catches Locke's eye, and the two politely acknowledge each other, unaware of what awaits them. Back on the island, on their way back to the hatch, Jack and Kate see what seems to be a small cloud of smoke, and they hear the rumbling of the monster. Locke's leg is caught by the smoke, and it drags him through the jungle. Jack grabs onto Locke to prevent him from being pulled into a hole through Locke's pleading with him to let him go. Jack then instructs Kate to drop a stick of dynamite into the tunnel, which causes an underground explosion, resulting in black smoke coming out of a nearby hole on the horizon and then disappearing. Jack and Locke discuss the situation, and Locke says that Jack is a man of science, whereas he is a man of faith. And Locke believes everything that has occurred, including the death of Boone, was predestined, leading them all to the opening of the hatch. Jack disagrees, and believes that the opening of the hatch is simply a matter of survival. Charlie and Claire are alone on the beach when Rousseau runs up telling Charlie that she needs to see Saeed urgently. When Charlie runs off to get Saeed, Rousseau asks Claire if she can hold her baby. When Charlie returns with Saeed, he finds Claire exclaiming that her baby has been taken by Rousseau. Saeed surmises that Rousseau intends to attempt an exchange of Aaron for Alex. As evening approaches, Charlie and Saeed head back towards the Pillar of Black Smoke. During their journey, they also encounter the downed beechcraft, which Saeed reveals is full of heroin. When Saeed and Charlie arrive on the beach with the black smoke, they find it empty. They follow the sound of a baby crying to find Rousseau and the baby. Charlie angrily accuses her of lighting the fire herself and inventing these others as a cover for kidnapping the baby. She tearfully tells them that she overheard them saying that they were going to go after the boy, and she thought that if she brought him to them, they would return her child. She returns the baby to Saeed. When Saeed and Charlie return, Charlie reunites the baby with Claire. It is also revealed that Charlie has kept one of the statues with heroin in his bag. Meanwhile, Jack, Kate, Locke, and Hurley arrive at the hatch. They manage to set dynamite upon the hinge of the hatch and are about to set it off when Hurley notices the appearance of the numbers on the side. He yells at them not to light the fuse, but Locke does so anyway. Hurley tries to stamp it out, but Jack tackles him just in time to save him from the blast. At night, the crew on the raft detect a blip on the radar that turns out to be a boat in the distance. They fire their one and only flare, and the boat approaches. It turns out to be a group of strangers in a small craft who demand that they hand over Walt. Sawyer tries to pull his gun, but he is shot by one of the crewmen and falls into the water. Jen jumps into the water to try and save Sawyer, while the strangers overpower Michael and kidnap Walt. As they sail off, a blonde stranger heaves a Molotov cocktail onto the raft, destroying it. Jack and Locke approach the hatch and slide open the door slowly. They peer down, and it reveals a very deep, dark hole with a broken ladder near the top. The episode ends pulling away and fades to black. The hatch is open. Season one is over.
Thank you so much, Marty, for that uh, wonderful uh, summary of the episode. Uh, as I said in uh, the podcast for uh, the first half of Exodus Part 2, uh, when Marty originally sent it to me, it was for uh, this double-length uh, version of um, Exodus Part 2, and uh, because of technical reasons on my end, I needed to split them up to uh, to two different halves. So if you heard any little, any little bit of jumping here or there, it certainly is uh, my doing and my fault and not, uh, not uh, reflective of Marty's wonderful uh, production there. Anyhow, let's now move on to my thoughts about the episode. Uh, the second half of Exodus Part 2, or Exodus Part 3, if you want to call it that, it opens with the first appearance of the smoke. Um, first, it has those little uh, wisping spy guys, as some have called them, and then the tree rippers come. It, how splendid, too, that Jack and Kate Hurley run from it, whereas Locke just tiptoes, tiptoes forwards. Uh, let's not forget that he has seen the smoke before, of course. Um, and when it turns out to not be beautiful, you know, he had described it as, uh, it, it's beautiful, it's the beauty of the island. Uh, when it turns out that that's not the case, when it's pulling down a tree next to him, we just see that true look of terror on the face of Locke. Um, and indeed, there's some great camera work uh, as the smoke monster pulls Locke. They clearly are trying to avoid showing too much. And there are many little views of Locke being pulled off screen, kind of quick little things. And generally, he's being pulled... Um, well, as I said, he's being pulled off screen, so it's not that you're seeing what's pulling him as much as, oh, the camera wasn't able to quite capture that smoke monster, and P.S. now nobody needs to pay for uh, any digital effects because it was just uh, Terry O'Quinn's torso that got pulled to the left, or it's uh, they kind of have that wonderful, wonderful camera view of um, Terry O'Quinn facing the camera as the actor and the camera are both pulled along the ground. So you don't get to see what's behind him because he's blocking the, the thing, the unseen thing. Um, there perhaps are echoes of uh, the movie Jaws where you know the, the terror is not seeing the shark um, you know, and all of that uh, kind of psychological implication and all that. But anyhow, as wonderful as these camera effects are, I wish that the same could be said uh, about some of the smoke effects. Uh, after Kate throws the dynamite down one of Smokey's holes, the smoke just pops out and leaves. The shots are fleeting, but the effects really are not that great. It's not that they're bad, they're just not great. And, uh, you know, certainly that's something that the show dealt with. Uh, you know, their beard and wig technology is a whole other, uh, whole other issue. But, you know, that turnaround for a TV show, it, it, it's already so expensive, it's already on location, and they're building... Um, you know, oftentimes they have sets that are, are a one-shot type thing. You know, the the um, the police station where Sawyer is brought to in, in Sydney. You know, that's not a that's not a uh, a reusable set. That's not going to be a, a set piece of the show. So the the money you spend either building that or or finding it on a location and dressing it properly. That's kind of you know one shot and that's it. So anyhow, all this money is being spent. And then you get to the point where okay the the whole episode is now locked off. It's the edit. There's going to be no more changes. Now you need to start the work of the, the digital effects. So I'm a bit sympathetic, but uh, at the end of the day, it's it's too bad that the quality isn't there. Anyhow, um, watching this uh, second half, you know, what we're calling for the podcast, what we're calling Exodus Part 3, watching it on Netflix, um, I was struck by how the two-hour version was paced to allow for it being cut in half. And, uh, you know, indeed, since I 
know, since making the decision to cut it in half for the podcast, I am a little more, um, oh, uh, I'm a little bit more aware of the fact that, you know, in the international versions, this has been done. Uh, on the DVD versions, this has been done. On the Netflix version, it's been done. So I don't know if this is somehow how it was intended uh, or, or what. I don't know. But um, anyhow, if you're sitting here kind of saying, you know, how dare he cut this episode in half? Technical reasons be damned. You, you know, the, the, you're messing up the purity of Locke. Uh, purity of Locke. The purity of Lost. Hey, I don't know. There's some some people have only ever seen it as Exodus Part One, Part Two, and Part Three. But anyhow, this episode, Exodus Part Three, works as a an episode on its own by how it's been paced. The smoke monster serves as a midway point for the longer two-hour episode, uh, with the raft time being a bit of a breather. In the one-hour episode, the one that we're looking at now, the smoke monster is the teaser act, and the raft is the quiet time for the credits to roll over. So it works. Um, at least during those credits, though, we, I had the thrill of seeing MC Ganey's name in the credits. Uh, bearded Tom, welcome to the show. Anyhow, moving on. Watching the scene where Sun consoles Claire, two things struck me. First, Claire is slightly out of focus. We haven't seen that happen in a while where the, there's these sort of camera mistakes. And second, I wondered if some of the actors, particularly, if the, fe- particularly the female ones, if they ever felt left out of the show. Here, Claire and Son are sitting around worrying about husbands and babies. Uh, and I mean, kind of husbands in quotes, right? I mean, Charlie isn't literally Claire's husband, but it's the, the husband, boyfriend, uh, man, take care of you people, which we'll just call husbands, husbands and babies, uh, while other characters are out sailing, running, shooting, and blowing things up. So, you know, I know you're saying, well, what about the exception of Kate? Yeah, Kate is the girl who's out with all the sailing, running, shooting, and blowing things up. Otherwise, we have, let's see, let's go through the list here. The people who are out doing all these exciting things. Jack, Locke, Hurley, Walt, Jin, uh, Michael, and Sawyer. So, perhaps some gender inequity there. At any rate, the episode moves to Charlie and Saeed, who are running uh, and about to use the gunpowder to use, to close Charlie's wound. This is a tremendously visceral scene, and something that I... I would imagine manly men do, you know, closing head head wounds with a flash of gunpowder in the field. Um, it's just kind of, you know, it's it, it's quite good. And of course, that scene ends, and I think they go to commercial with um, Charlie just screaming from the pain of the of the burn, you know, and the pain that he has welcomed because he wants to continue to to get the baby back and prove himself to Claire. Um. Moving on, the Hurley flashback, it's one in a series of Hurley bits that I don't always care for. It's kind of the funny fat man, complete with the Latin-inspired music in the background as he zips to the airport. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've spoken at length about the the dignity that I I think the the character has and how from very early on they're setting him up as this alternative sort of leader, the leader of the group, not the chairman of the board, as, as is Jack's leadership style. But So I don't know, I don't always appreciate when it's kind of, you know, hey, Hurley's fat and goofy, and so let's have him do fat, goofy things. Anyhow, as a side note, the Oceanic Airlines computer has Hurley's birthday listed as DD slash MM slash YYY. Good job there, security-wise, Oceanic Airlines. Anyhow, well... Before I move on, I'll just say, I mean, you have to feel for these TV people to a certain degree. 
certainly, you know, when this is airing in 2005, we're at the cusp of where um, TV on DVD is becoming a bigger thing. We're at, we're at the cusp where uh, DVRs and TiVo and watching online and, you know, being able to pause uh, a high-quality uh, version of the show, you know, high-quality, whether it's, you know, recorded, whatever, um, that that's more and more possible. So these little production errors where, you know, in the past, to have the date not filled out, you know, no one would ever notice. It would just go go by quickly. But here, you know, here we do see it. At any rate, you know, at least Hurley is an enjoyable presence, as always, uh, as he runs along. He also tries to cut in front of Arts, uh, who it's very nice to see back in one piece, albeit in a flashback. Uh, and we, of course, briefly see the soccer team with 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42 jerseys. Um, that particular joke plays great on widescreen, but I remember it not being as visible uh, when I watched it in full screen back in the day. Um, all this comedy, you know, it does play with a dark irony, uh, down to the airline worker declaring that Hurley getting on the plane is his lucky day. Lucky in the big picture, yes. I mean, who would have protected the island long-term after Jacob? Which is, I mean, I know Jack was there briefly, but just kind of, you know, Jack dies, and then what? Who's your long-term protector? But nonetheless, I mean, that's that certainly isn't um, the authorial intent when the lurk, when the worker's saying, boy, lucky you, you get to go on this plane today. The intent in that, in, in, in the episode, I'm sure, is that, you know, here it is, He's it's his lucky day to get on a plane that's going to crash. Um, but on the flip side, I mean, Hurley probably is okay with the end result, being the island's protector, but man, oh man, there must have been points where he just said to himself, if only he had listened to the universe trying to gently tell him to miss that flight. Um, another interesting aspect of this half uh, of Exodus Part 2, or an interesting aspect of Exodus Part 3, however you want to be wording it, is that it flows much differently than the first half. At the one-third way through this episode, we've seen the smoke monster early on, and then essentially had a lot of reactions about what happened uh, during the first half. I need for you to explain to me what the hell's going on inside your head, John. I need to know why you believed that that thing wasn't going to... I believe that I was being tested. Tested? Yeah. Tested. I think that's why you and I don't see eye to eye sometimes, Jack. Because you're a man of science. Yeah. What does that make you? Me? Well, I'm a man of faith. Do you really think all this is an accident? That we, a group of strangers, survived? Many of us with just superficial injuries? Do you think we crashed on this place by coincidence? Especially this place? We were brought here for a purpose, for a reason, all of us. Each one of us was brought here for a reason. Brought here. And who brought us here, John? The island. The island brought us here. This is no ordinary place. You've seen that, and we have. The island chose you too, Jack. It's destiny. So as I said, I mean, it's kind of reactions to, to things that have already happened, not to take away from the clip at all. I mean, it's uh, certainly a seminal, central uh, discussion between these two characters that are uh, polar opposites in so many ways. Um, 
But uh, anyhow, the episode continues some of that smart uh, juxtapositioning that it had in the first half. Here we see Locke, powerful and contemplative on the island, then go to commercial. After returning, we see Locke at the gate in the airport, powerless and frustrated and, uh, I mean, I'll say impotent. I don't mean it in a sexual way, but just kind of, uh, you know, powerless to the nth degree. Uh, it's a tremendously humiliating scene, Locke being carried on board by two flight attendants. Um, and then we're back on the island at the hatch, no less. Um, the episode at this point has shifted to night. As is often the case, everything looks different uh, at night. Uh, the forest around the hatch seems dense and closed in. I mean, it's a side note. I'm assuming that they are on a set at this point so that uh, the shooting of the climax of the episode can be done with no constraints for uh, rain, wind, uh, you know, etc. Um, but even... You know, nonetheless, the the nighttime effect is this. Uh, you know, the world only exists as far as the firelight can um, can illuminate it. Uh, and same thing, with, same thing with the raft, where the raft during daylight is on this endless ocean, this this hope of freedom just around the horizon. Now the raft seems extremely isolated. I mean, you can't see. You know, the the shots when they're looking out to, to a bit later in the episode, looking out to to see. You know, is the boat coming and what's out there in the darkness? I mean, it essentially is. It's an extremely low lit episode. Uh, episode low lit scene. Um, you, I mean, you can barely see what's out there beyond some some waves and whatnot. So that uh, well, it just further reinforces uh, how isolated they are on the raft. And indeed, sticking with the raft for a second, there's a nice echo of the Sawyer Walt conversation when Michael and Sawyer have a talk. You got the patience of a saint. Yeah. Why you say that? Seeing the way he talks to you. The way he runs around, does whatever the hell he wants. I'd have showed him the back of my hand a long time ago. You would, huh? Hell of a lot cheaper than a shrink. Is that what your father did to you? Show you the back of his hand? My daddy never got a chance to beat me. Shot himself when I was eight. You know, as a side note, that's a heck of a way to uh, to win a conversation, you know. My father shot himself when he was eight. That's that, that stops the conversation right there. But anyhow, I was I was surprised by how soon the Rafties find something on radar. It's about halfway through this hour. I don't recall what I thought the first time I saw this episode, but certainly, uh, you know, the at this point, the end of the raft is now slowly underway. Um, moving back to the island, Charlie and Saeed also reach the source of the black fire smoke. So a couple of thoughts about that clip. First is, I would personally make a connection between no footprints and the sub, uh, though certainly a lot is implied to be the crazy work of Danielle. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe in a in the next clip that, that discusses Danielle, uh, I'll be proven wrong, even though I've heard the clip a couple of times. But certainly, I mean, my recollection watching that scene the first time is, that there's just this, it's like, how in the world 
do they, do they, how in the world are there no footprints? Um, and in fact, I suppose, you know, in Danielle's defense, and again, I could be totally proven wrong by this next clip, but in Danielle's defense, if she did not light the fire, um, then, then that's supported by the fact that there are no footprints. Uh, shouldn't there at the very least be her footprints walking away if she did it? Um, and I mean, also too, I think somewhere along the way, I uh, probably there's a third answer if indeed the others at least checked out the fire. Uh, and of course, it would be the boat um, that we're going to be seeing shortly, the boat with uh, bearded Tom on there. But uh, anyhow, let's get to this Danielle clip and then discuss further. There never were any others. You started the fires yourself. Oh, I heard them whispering. You're a nutjumper. You heard nothing. I heard them say they were coming for the child. The others said they were coming for the boy. All right, so certainly from that clip, Danielle, you know, she said, or she, you know, Charlie accuses her of, there are no others, you dream this whole thing up, you lit the fire. It's kind of you, 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 Danielle. And she just gives a blanket, no. Now, she's upset, she's confused, she's not always reliable. I'll take that as support that the others lit the fire. That's why there's no footprints, whether they've come on the sub or come on the boat. Um, to me, that's just supportive of, of this being the work of the others. Um, and indeed, it's a bit of a misdirect on the part of the show. Charlie's dialogue is meant to have us assume it's Danielle and only Danielle, given the fact that we haven't seen a single other yet. Um, to me, though, you know, as I've said, the lack of footprints and the fact that they, the others do have an interest in children suggests to me that indeed this was the plan of the others, including the, the, the black fire smoke. I have to say, too, I, I, watching this episode for the podcast, and this is an episode I've seen four or five times before this, I had a completely wow, I'm dumb moment. Beardy Tom on the boat, were they the ones checking the black smoke fire? This question popped into my head for the first time re-watching this episode. I feel incredibly silly for not having considered that before. Um you know that it's that the, that the two are connected indeed you know when Dan, when Danielle is saying they're coming for the child they're coming for the boy well they get the child they get the boy it's Walt right so anyhow I hope I haven't disappointed some uh, loyal listeners at what I feel in retrospect is just a tremendously obvious thing they're not they haven't been coming for the baby all along uh, Danielle has heard them say they're coming for the boy uh, she misinterpreted that because her her newborn was taken, so she assumes it is the other newborn when in fact it's Walt. Walt, who, uh, whether the others uh, know it or not, uh, has been identified as special and unique, and, and you know, we've discussed Magic Walt in the past before. But anyhow, back on the raft, there's debate uh, about whether to shoot the flare gun or not. In my mind, the debate goes on for a bit too much for my liking. If I was editing the show and I could replace that footage with something else, I, I would. Um, but then there's just also kind of the annoying beeping of the radar. It's coming back! It's coming back! <laughs> <laughs> yes! Okay, there we go! Okay, okay. <laughs> 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 Let me go back to the beeping. Beep. It's just... As I say, it's a bit annoying. Um, the boat arriving, uh, presumably to save them, though, 
is this wonderfully happy moment, although it does start to melt very, very slowly. Uh, luckily, Giacchino's music doesn't forecast it this time. The viewer is still happy, uh, though some are wondering why the boat might be so darn small. Uh, and indeed, this just all ends up being a genuinely surprising moment. Uh, indeed, I mean, the scene is a lesson in pacing. As we reach this point here, they just absolutely stop the episode. Again, the episode there, it just, it, the, this pacing, the music, the sound effects, everything, it just stops. The notion that Beardy has so clearly said that he's there for the boy. For some of us at home, it, it's just dawning us that Danielle has said the exact same thing, that they're coming for the boy. It's dawning on us that maybe they weren't coming for Aaron at all, that it was Walt, the same Walt that we know to be special on some level, as I, as I said before. It's just... It's, uh, I mean, what an effective scene. It just stops you. It just stops you. Because all of a sudden now, you know, you've heard of these, you know, the fishermen come across the whatever. you heard of this sort of thing. But the fact that here the raft has been out for a day and a night, and uh, as they hoped, they've come across somebody, and then they haven't left their their doorstep. You know, it's people from the island, people who know them. Uh, it's It's just this tremendously effective scene. Uh, and indeed, you know, for all the Michael jokes, the end of that scene is appropriately dramatic as well. I love in particular about that scene is uh, for all the way it's being shot chaotically uh, I believe it's Jack Bender who directed this but anyhow the director wisely takes the time to kind of uh, stop capturing the chaos for a moment and there's just this wonderful scene Walt on the boat uh, there's a light uh, you know beneath the railing of the boat or whatever you know hidden out of sight which is uh, illuminating him perfectly uh, on his face, on that yellow life jacket, just perfectly. He's looking at the camera. There's people kind of in the shadows holding his arms. And then either the boat is moving away or the camera boat who's shooting him is pulling away, whatever it might be. So he's just kind of, you know, uh, sliding off away from us as he stares into the camera, perfectly clear. No attempt to kind of, uh, 
you know, mirror the the murkiness of the actual, uh, you know, the actual environment. It's just this moment of kind of uh, dramatic clarity where they're communicating directly to us. You know, there's Walt, terrified, being held and disappearing. Uh, it's just fantastic. As is, you know, as is Michael's reaction. You have to give uh, Harold Perrineau credit here. I mean, what what else would you be screaming other than your child's name in a situation like this? And it's just, uh, it's heartfelt. It's shocking. It's the show punching you in the gut. You're saying, you know, how? Who are these people? You know, it's all these questions. Who are, Who are these people? What's going on? You in no way saw this coming at all. Um, I know I spoke either in the last episode or, or in the interview podcast, but, um, you know, I mean, if you were to sit and discuss at home realistic possibilities for this episode before you saw it for the first time, I mean, it's a safe assumption that the raft isn't going to sail on to wherever and bump into some, uh, you know, bump into a carnival cruise ship and say, hey, you know, quick, get on the satellite phone. Two days that way, there's a island and, they, you know... They, that kind of wasn't going to be the direction of the show, but within the um, within the dramatic world of the episode, uh, you didn't see this coming. You didn't, and you in no way foresaw that uh, that the crazy lady was right, and there are other people out there, and they have boats, and they're capturing children. You know, it's just uh, it's 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 quite nice. Anyhow, the episode starts to move into its final act, and I love that they're setting us up for one last zinger. Sure, Walt's been taken, and, and that isn't resolved, you know, but hey, this is lost where things are often unresolved. Um, but we know elsewhere that the hatch has been blown at this point, uh, and here, you know, we have the final act starting. We have the happy montage music with no dialogue, as the show does just so wonderfully uh, from time to time. And uh, indeed, we've seen this sort of uh, montage before. It's how things end happily on the show. The baby has been returned to his mother. Shannon runs to Saeed. There's just this wonderful scene. And she comes back. I think it's kind of in slight slow motion. Uh, Saeed's washing his uh, his face or his hair or whatever. So he's kind of, you know, drenched in uh, drenched in water. And they, they run together and embrace. Uh, then we cut to Charlie cleaning his wounds. Uh, kind of the, the triumphant, uh, you know, uh, pseudo-husband. Then the camera moves down and the music turns sour. Charlie, good old Charlie, has of course taken the Virgin Mary. It's a reminder not only of our own frailty, but that there's another season coming. And I think in many ways it leaves you rather disappointed uh, in Charlie. The montage continues with passengers boarding 815, uh, certainly blissfully unaware of uh, what awaits them. And you know we've talked about this juxtaposition. Of course, you have uh, you know you've touched in in this final act. Well. If you, if you include right before the last commercial break, you've touched in with uh, Walt and Michael and Jin and, uh, and uh, Sawyer on the raft. Uh, you're now at the caves with uh, the majority of the rest of the, the survivors, including kind of the unnamed ones. Uh, clearly, you know you're going to be seeing the hatch shortly, uh, but they kind of interrupt this with a, you know, the montage of these blissfully unaware, unconnected passengers boarding 815. It's a review of the people that we started to know at the beginning of the season. Uh, Angry Sawyer, Fugitive Kate, Lovelorn Saeed, Rocker Charlie, Helpless Shannon, who the camera reveals is sitting next to that beloved character of Boone. And let me just say again how kind he was to have always returned uh, to the show that, you know, in essence kind of fired him for dramatic purposes. 
Um, and then also boarding the plane, of course, is Hurley just in time. You know, the scene reminded me, too, of the, the sideways 815 of season six, uh, which, of course, had the absent Shannon. You know, here we kind of have the camera trick of Shannon, who's still on the show, and it pulls back to reveal us, reveal to us Boone, who uh, who we might think wouldn't be there uh, because he's off the show, but there he is and tugs at our heartstrings. Similarly, uh, when Shannon is missing at the, in the beginning of season six, um, that tugs in our heartstrings uh, in another way. Uh, certainly I'll discuss this in you know a year and a half or two years when I get to this episode, but while it's on my mind, I'll just mention at the time there were news reports that her schedule was such that she couldn't fit it in. In retrospect, I wonder if that was true because the bottom line is this. To me, she's the missing piece on the sideways 815, the thing that makes it incomplete. And when she does show up in the finale, it's just this note of completion you know they've kind of you know, to, use, to use kind of musical terms there's this dissonance given to us at the beginning of season six and then when she arrives and all of a sudden you're realizing all these people are showing up we're having the curtain call here of sorts these characters are headed to something they're coming back to something whatever this is where they're having these moments of realization when she's there it clicks and it's worth not having her there in the beginning of the season so whether the actress was busy or they just said, you know, hey, here's an extra five grand, tell everybody that you had a scheduling conflict, whatever. It's just, it's effective. And to bring it back to this episode, the uh, the end of uh, the Exodus duology or trilogy, however you want to cut it, um, the fact that we have a Shannon close-up and then widen the shot so it's a two-shot of her and Boone, it's, uh, it, it's a special moment indeed. And uh, by the way, Speaking of camera moves, the camera does a nice job of hiding the fact that Rose and Bernard, we have yet to meet Bernard at all, but the fact that Rose and Bernard aren't there, uh, it probably would have been more trouble than it's worth to hide Bernard. Um, I mean, given that, let's see, they there, there probably was no need to have cast the actor at this point. Similarly, um, I mean, my goodness, if you knew Bernard at this point, that episode in season two, is it the other 48 days or... Perhaps no, 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 it wouldn't be that. But I mean, that episode that that's just waiting for us, where you find out who Bernard is, and you know you're you're shamed into having assumed that Bernard was a black man, and you're 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 have tears in your eyes because of the love that these two characters share and the connection that they have, despite this tragedy and having been uh, separated for all this time. I mean, to have had that taken away in this episode, so you have that rather familiar familiar looking actor you know he's been in Forrest Gump and a ton of other things to have him sitting there with Rose kind of patting her hand or saying you know kind of tugging at his stomach like he needs to go use the bathroom or whatever because of course he you know he's he's uh, absent during the crash because he's in the bathroom but anyhow not to spend too much time with Bernard but to have had Bernard there would have ruined one of the great moments and lost certainly but anyhow they're hiding the fact that you don't see Bernard they're hiding the fact that you don't see Rose um Bernard, we understand why, we've just discussed, but it probably also would have been more trouble, uh, pardon me, it, it probably would have been too much trouble to fly, um, is it L. Scott Caldwell, is that the name of the actress who plays Rose, to fly her out to, to do a wordless cameo, probably wouldn't have been conducive in her schedule, and I know in real life there's some, there's some point between the, the piled episode of Lost and the Rose flashback where her real life husband um, is, you know, was diagnosed with sudden terminal cancer and, and died 
you know, quickly and suddenly and sadly and tragically and this sort of thing. So, indeed, they might have said, hey, it's worth us to fly out here to give you some money to put you up in a hotel so you can be part of the cameo. And perhaps she was in the middle of, you know, this awful period in her life where, where her husband was dying. So, anyhow, <laughs> on that happy note of uh, Rose and Bernard, Rose and Bernard aren't there. Despite all the flashbacks, the episode ends, of course, on the island, the hatch having been blown open. Our four main leads, Jack, Kate, Hurley, and Locke, are heading towards the hatch door, which clearly has been broken open. Uh, the music is lurking and ominous. What's in there? Is it sickness? Is it the great evil? Is it an empty shelter? Is it indeed hope? The beating music should tell us what, of course, listeners already know, that the opening is just one more mystery. Uh, a shaft leading down, a broken ladder, and one heck of an open season. And thus we're left uh, on that cliffhanger note. I know that a lot of people were upset that, uh, you know, at the time, that season one ended on a cliffhanger. I mean, to me, I in no way was surprised uh, by it ending on a cliffhanger. I mean, you know, all these episodes did. There was, you know, I mean, there was resolution to a great degree. You got the hatch open. You know, a second season is coming. Um, anyhow, I mean, if you're listening to this, certainly now, even if you're upset with it being a cliffhanger, you know that second season is, you know, only the next disc away or the next click on Netflix or, or whatever it might be. So the anger has since uh, been ameliorated. And uh, though the episode and the season are over, the podcast is not. Let's take a look at uh, some odds and ends from Lostpedia to see anything that I may have missed. Uh, it notes that this is the only season finale that didn't fe feature Ben or Bernard. They also mention, as we've said before, uh, that for the European and Australian markets, this episode was cut in two one-hour-long episodes, making it Exodus Part 2 and what we're dealing with now, Exodus Part 3. This is the, uh, the same is true for the American release of Lost the Complete Collection on DVD and Blu-ray. So again, if you're a little upset that these two episodes were cut in half, uh, my apologies. It was part technical reasons on the podcast end, and then also kind of just reflective of, uh, you know, the way the episodes are presented now. Lostpedia goes on to mention, and this is a bit nitpicky here, but the hair of Sawyer, Son, Jin, and Shannon on the plane during the sequence at the end is noticeably longer. They have longer hair than pilot part one and part two. Eh, I mean, yeah, okay, continuity error, big whoop. Um, lastly, they mention the story Arts tells about the discovery of nitroglycerin is incorrect. The man who discovered it, Asiano Sobrero, survived his experiments. So there you go. Um, also adding to this episode, uh, luckily, uh, I had mentioned at the beginning that there is the, uh, there is the uh, new Looking Back at Lost uh, voicemail line, which is 732-707-1815. And uh, luckily, superfan Bonnie, uh, well, left a message, which I'll share with you now. Well, hello there, Matt. It's Bonnie from Dallas, though I fear my native New Yorker accent is shining through. I'll tell you, though, being able to call into the show directly is a wonderful advantage. And I hope I'm not too late to get in on uh, Exodus Part 2, because I've got two previously unnoticed observations. First, um, that look of abject terror on Locke's face when Smokey yanks him towards the hole. And he says, uh, let me go, Jack. He begs him. 
And that is quite a counterpoint to the strange calm we usually see come over his face when Locke has dealings with the smoke monster. And secondly, oh, wow, the way Saeed's heart just melted when he came back from the Black Rock and he found Shannon anxiously waiting for him. I have had a hard time getting on board with the Shannon Saeed love interest, and I know you disagree. Um, but I have to say that in this scene, I really see your side of things. This is uh, a guy who spent years trying to atone for what he did as a torturer, and he sees someone caring for the man he is now. Well, thanks for the opportunity to share some thoughts, and have a great week. Looking forward to the next podcast. Bye. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for calling in. And uh, indeed, as this does kind of wrap up the first season of the podcast, uh, even though I'm not going anywhere and I'll be back next week with a new episode, um, you know, it's wonderful uh, that uh, people like Bonnie and Marty and Dan and others have taken the time uh, in this first season of the podcast to to be in touch, to follow me on Twitter, to send me emails, to share their thoughts. And uh, it's just been, uh, I can't believe that it's now been, 25 podcasts uh, since I started back in, you know, with this idea back in January, and uh, it's just been um, it's been a true treat uh, doing this, and a true true treat having everybody uh, along for the ride. So, of course, the ride does not end. Next week, we will be looking at uh, episode 201, Man of Science, Man of Faith, and uh, I'm absolutely looking forward to to that. Season two is uh, probably my favorite season. Um, I guess I'll find out for sure as we as we do this rewatch together. A reminder, of course, that new episodes launch to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcasting Network now on Mondays, so you can be uh, looking forward to that. If you'd like to share feedback, here's some different ways to do it. The voice message line, again, the phone number is 732-707-1815. Uh, you can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Uh, you can visit the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And of course, you can find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always appreciated. So thank you once again to all the listeners, uh, whether you reach out and say hello or just enjoy it silently. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your uh, loyal uh, listenership, if you want to call it that. And uh, I will see you all next week for Season 2. Take care and bye-bye. Spot on.